Lecture Five: Categories, Rules, and Scripts. In the previous lecture, we discussed how our minds are not a tabula rasa. That the way in which we learn is influenced by our prior understanding of categories and events, and those prior understandings can be called schemata, and scripts are one kind of schemata. Now, as I noted, this begs the question of how those things are learned and what precisely we're learning in the first place. And this is the topic we're going to take up in this lecture on categories, rules, and scripts. Later in this course, we'll return to issues of purpose and script learning as well. Now, let's start with categories. How do we learn categories? Categories are really important, even beyond learning. For example, knowing whether something is edible or not is a category judgment. Knowing whether a person can be trusted or not is also a category judgment. So categories are critical, well beyond the role they play in learning. One of the first demonstrations of category learning occurred in the area of perceptual learning. Perceptual learning is a very important type of learning. For example, perceptual learning is actually what permits young kids to distinguish between the letters D, B, P, and Q, all of which actually look pretty similar, especially to a child learning to read. Initially. Perceptual learning was thought of as a kind of memory-based process. In other words, the idea was that kids were memorizing B, D, P, and Q, and then recalling them later on. And the process of reading depended on memory and recognition. But James and Eleanor Gibson in the 1950s made some important arguments about perceptual learning that were not related to memory. Specifically, they argued that what we learn through perceiving, and what we learn actually somewhat automatically. Is to perceive more and more aspects or features of what we're looking at, and as a consequence, we can make more and more fine-grained distinctions among things we're looking at. So it isn't memorizing P, B, D, and Q. It's that after we look at those letters over and over and over and over again, we learn to notice that the little stick on the side of the circle is changing its orientation. Another lovely and more、um, Pleasurable example might be to think about wine. On my arrival in Palo Alto, California, as a graduate student, I could distinguish between white and red wine on the basis of color and taste, but I had no idea of differences in different varietals within white wines, say, and I couldn't tell the difference when I was tasting wines. After living for five years in some proximity to the Napa and Sonoma Valley wine regions. And accumulating many perceptual experiences of taste and smell and color, I was actually able to make varietal distinctions. On the other hand, my Austrian friend and office mate, who had been a wine fanatic for most of his adulthood, was already able to discriminate many flavors and actually to categorize wines by growing regions and so on. So some of what we think of as wine expertise is based on this kind of perceptual learning process. Why does this matter? Well. Discriminating between different things is a fundamental precursor to being able to understand categories. Categories exist because we're saying that certain distinctions, like where the tail is on the B versus the D, matter, while other distinctions, whether the tail is longer or shorter, whether it is a serif or sans serif typeface, don't matter. And as we already discussed, prior learning of, about categories has a lot of implications for what we learn. 
Some initial work on perceptual learning was done by the Gibsons in the 1950s. And the Gibsons presented participants of various ages with drawings of squiggles. These were sort of badly drawn spirals. Now, there was a target squiggle, sort of the squiggle you were supposed to focus on. And this squiggle had four coils visible on the left side of the drawing, and there was some space between each of the coils. Now, the Gibsons also showed participants 17 other types of squiggles. And these other squiggles varied in the number of coils they had and whether the coils were on the left or the right side and in how closely or widely spaced the coils were. Now, the variations were pretty subtle, but if you were told which details to look for and you were shown all of the squiggles at the same time, you could immediately see the differences. The trick happens when you're shown the squiggles one at a time and you're not sure of the dimensions or the ways in which the coils can vary and you're asked, is this like or unlike the target squiggle? That's a harder task. So the Gibsons presented the target squiggle along with the non-target squiggles, the sort of squiggles that participants were asked to categorize, on cards, and they did this one at a time to participants. And participants had to look at each new squiggle and say, is it the same category as the first squiggle, or is it a different category? Participants didn't learn whether they were right or wrong, And the Gibsons made them continue to make these judgments until the point at which they got to be 100% accurate. Now, at that point, they can be viewed as having learned the rules by which a squiggle gets classified as the same or different from the target squiggle. The Gibsons tested three groups in this experiment. They tested adults, they tested older children between 8 and 11 years, and younger children between 6 and 8 years. Now, the adults were very capable of discriminating the squiggles from the beginning. They made only three errors, on average, on their very first try, and they only needed those three tries to get to perfect classification. The kids took a bit longer. It took them nearly five times through the cards to reach perfect identification. And that younger group needed longer to get it right, even more than five times through, and most of that younger group never really got it perfect. Now, Another difference between the age groups was that adults and older kids' mistakes were subtle. In other words, they made mistakes at first with squiggles that were pretty close to the target squiggle, but only a little bit different. Little kids actually made lots of mistakes, even with squiggles that were very different. What we need to take from this work and subsequent work Um, And actually, Eleanor Gibson went on to work with children's ability to recognize letters as they learn to read. What we need to take from this is that just looking at material over and over again increases the extent to which we can perceive differences in those materials. Now, since judgments of similarity and difference are a fundamental part of category learning, this kind of perceptual training, this perceptual learning, is a basic step in acquiring categories. So what the results of the study show us is that all age groups get better at the task over time. They also show us that once you're an adult, your ability to quickly acquire perceptual categories is significantly improved. The second thing that the study shows us is that people didn't get feedback about whether they were right or wrong ever. They just had to keep making judgments until they were getting it right. And so the learning that people did wasn't in response to rewards. It wasn't even a response to the reward of the experimenter saying, right, good job. Now, of course, being able to make same and different judgments among squiggles isn't quite the same as fully learning a category. So consider our category of birds. 
you might consider robins and sparrows as a kind of prototype of bird. These are the kinds of birds we usually think of when we think about the category of birds. Now, there are, however, other birds that are part of this concept or this category, like parrots, hawks, eagles, and vultures. All of these birds that I've mentioned so far share the features of feathers, beaks, wings, egg laying, and flight. But what about penguins and ostriches? These are also birds. Bird is a complicated category even for the non-ornithologists among us. Over time, though, we've come to acquire the idea of birds and the idea that these more atypical birds also are part of that category. Now, how did we do that? To pull back momentarily to the Gibson's initial work, we'd say this is like learning that the target squiggle category includes all four coil squiggles, regardless of distance, and the occasional three coil squiggle because of some bizarre exception. So how do we pull that off? In fact, we, and monkeys, appear to acquire categories and stages. First we master what's typical, and then we seem to learn the sort of wacky examples. So we first figure out that robins, sparrows, and starlings are all birds. Then we move a bit further afield for hawks and raptors, and then we finally get around to mastering the weird examples like penguins and ostriches. But the fact that we do this in stages actually begs the question of really how we manage it. Um, and so what, it, what is it that we're really learning here, and how are we doing it? Well, category learning is so important, it actually looks like we have a number of different ways of learning about regularities in our environment. Early views in this area were called exemplar theories, and they focused on memorizing each example of a category individually as a member of that category. So this would be a little bit like learning the association between each individual fish and the overarching category of trout. Now, another idea, the prototype theory account, goes like this. First, we have an experience with a category, for example, fish. And from that experience, we form a representation of the prototypical category member. Then, when we encounter a new fish, we match it up with the prototype of fish that we have formed in order to kind of decide whether the thing we're looking at is a fish or a fowl. But these accounts turn out not to be very helpful, in part because they really don't correspond to how the brain processes information. And categorization is so important for us that we're likely to go about it in different ways. Um, in engineering, they would say it's likely to have some redundancy. So more recent theorists believe that there are at least two broad routes to category learning. One is a very deliberate verbal rule-based approach. And in that approach, we operate a bit like little scientists. We have a guess about the rules for the category. And the rule we're guessing about can be used to make a prediction about whether a new example belongs to the category or not. And what we do is we try out our guess, we get some feedback, and we revise the rules and the guesses for the next round. A lot of the category learning we do in school works this way. Um, and you can consider how you learn to differentiate between letters as one example of this. As another example of this rule-based approach, children learn to make the plural of a noun in English by adding an S. So one cat, four cats. Now initially, kids actually try this rule out on things where it doesn't work. They say sheep and sheeps, uh, mouse and mouses. They have an idea about the rule, and they try to use this rule all the time. Gradually, they learn when the rule does apply and when it doesn't. They learn the categories of regular and irregular plurals. Now, I said there were two routes. The other route is simply 
guessing about category membership, just saying, I think that's an X, and finding out whether we got it right. Now, at some point, we get very good at saying, yeah, that's an X, but we don't know precisely how. So you might be thinking, what's the difference here? Well, let me give you an example. Here's a good example. We're very good at guessing whether someone is male or female from the way they walk and from a pretty wide distance. Now, for the most part, none of us can explain exactly how we make this categorical judgment. We don't actually know the rule we're using to make the guess. There are differences in walking gait by gender between men and women along a lot of different dimensions. And we are somehow able to sum up all these small variations and to make a call to make a category judgment, male or female, well before we can see other gender differentiating features like clothing or hair or body shape. So if we have these two routes for categorizing, rule-based and good guessing, what do we know about them? Well, some research actually suggests we rely on different routes depending on the kind of category or the nature of the category we're learning. So let's think this through for a moment. Imagine you need to learn categories of fish. Now, these fish could be categorized in two different ways. In one way, the fish are simply categorized by size. So if the fish is in the large enough group, you may keep the trout. If the trout is too small, you have to release it again. Now, the category distinction that you're trying to learn here relies on one dimension, size. And there's a very simple rule for determining which category a fish belongs in. In fact, the Division of Wildlife's rule um, in my state is that you can keep a fish over 40 inches for some species. To learn this kind of category from scratch, let's say you don't actually know the 40-inch rule and you don't have a ruler, you might do the following. You might catch fish after fish. And in each case, you think, is it long enough or is it not long enough? And you decide, based on your judgment of how long the fish is, whether you're going to keep or release the fish. Now, the ranger, meanwhile, standing by, gives you either a nod or a citation. Over time, you're going to figure out this rule and you're going to be able to successfully classify fish as a keep or a release size. But as a fisher, you may also encounter a lake that contains both a permissibly catchable variety of trout and a number of other fish that are restricted. In my home state, various chubs and suckers that are considered endangered. Determining whether a fish is a permissible or non-permissible fish can no longer be described with a simple single rule about length. Now you have to integrate a number of different dimensions along which a fish can vary. And this includes fin size, fin placement and number, gill placement, body shape and size, color, and so on. It would be hard to describe a simple set of rules or a couple straightforward rules for making this judgment accurately. It's going to take you more experience with looking at fish to be able to do it. This type of category is what's called a nonlinear category, and it is learned researchers now think, by a process of information integration, putting together all those different dimensions, that operates more tacitly. That is, instead of explicitly testing a rule, like the fish has to be long enough, and keeping your working rule until you find that it didn't work for you on a particular occasion and then revising it, instead of doing that, people's minds just track on a more implicit and less conscious level the feedback they receive until they can categorize objects well and accurately, even though they're not quite able to tell you how they can do so. Just as we can tell someone's gender from the way they walk without really being able to tell you exactly what we're paying attention to, 
in order to make that category judgment. So two ways of categorizing, rules and guessing. Now, as with perceptual learning, feedback about correct guessing isn't always needed. For example, one study examined kindergarten children's understanding of the category or the concept of science and how this concept developed across the school year. So to do this, they interviewed kids about what science is prior to a program in the fall of the school year, midway through the the school year in December, and then again in the spring. Now, in the beginning, before kids did any kind of activities related to science, all the kids had some interesting ideas about science that scientists themselves probably wouldn't endorse. In particular, what kids thought is that science was what involves science-type stuff. Science is about lasers and rockets and chemicals and explosions. Or kids thought about science as fixing things, science more as engineering. Then some of the kids participated in a science program. And this program involved kids over the school year engaging in a bunch of different activities, all of which were referred to as science by the teacher. The activities included things like figuring out the density of liquids, figuring out differences between different types of insects, and many other kinds of hands-on science activities. After exposure to this program, it turned out kids had learned to think about science much more the way that grown scientists think of it. They thought about science as a method for answering questions, as a way of finding things out, rather than involving a specific content or being about fixing things. Now here's the key. This change in kids' category understanding only happened when kids were given lots of exposure and activity of a science-oriented nature. In other words, kids didn't get told science is about finding things out. They worked that out on their own when they were given a lot of exposure to science activities. Now, children who didn't receive that exposure did not, in fact, change their understanding of what science was over the course of that kindergarten year. The idea of science as a category brings us to more complicated kinds of prior knowledge, and this takes us to the subject of scripts. And recall that we, we also talked last time about scripts, and we discussed the script for eating a meal in a restaurant as an example. So how do we acquire scripts? Now, the short answer to this question is that we do so in many of the same ways that we acquire categories. Two ways. One is to very deliberately collect information that leads us to the rules for a script. The other is a more tacit approach that involves good guessing after amassing a lot of experience. And in fact, early in childhood, the process of verbally working through the rules that constitute a script can be seen really vividly in a famous case study. Catherine Nelson, a New York-based child development researcher, examined the tape-recorded monologues of a young girl named Emily. And the recordings were taken between the ages of 21 months um, and the time that Emily turned about three years old, so they were begun very soon after Emily acquired the ability to speak. Each night, after she was put to bed, Emily would lie in her crib and talk to herself. And here are some excerpts from these monologues. This first one comes from 23 months of age, And Morm in this quote is Emily's grandmother. One morning when Emmy go Morm in the daytime, that's what Emmy do sometimes. Sometimes Emmy go sleep and have read Daddy, no. 
What you can hear in this excerpt is that Emily is doing something a lot like that explicit rule-based kind of self-talk that we might do to extract a rule about a concept. As she does so, she's working on identifying the key elements of her script for her mornings. And these mornings were somewhat complicated and variable because they involved working parents, care by a nanny, and sometimes by her grandmother, and midway through the recording period, a shift to attending a preschool. Now, parent-child dialogue also plays a role in this. Recordings of Emily talking with her father during the same time frame actually show very similar patterns of emphasis on routines and scripts for daily events, figuring out what happens usually. Not only did Emily focus heavily on the routines of her life, it's interesting to note that the emphasis on figuring out scripts actually changed over time. Later in her recordings, Emily's actually focused a little bit more on unique experiences that were one of a kind, and she starts to do a little bit less self-talk about what happens usually. This is important because one of the major findings from this area of research is that early in our lives, we seem more attuned to using everyday events to extract scripts rather than trying to actually learn about a specific one-of-a-kind experience. And in fact, Emily's monologues are one of the pieces of evidence um, that suggest an explanation about why we can't recall specific events from very early in our lives. Um, In fact, researchers think that we can't remember specific personal experiences very well until we've actually learned scripts with which we can understand those events. So this part of script learning, this early childhood acquisition of scripts, has actually helped to explain a phenomenon termed early childhood or infantile amnesia. This term refers to the phenomenon that most, and in fact virtually all, adults can't recall specific one-time life experiences from prior to about age three or four years. Now, this is puzzling because many other researchers have shown that babies, even eight- and nine-month-old babies, have fully functioning memory abilities. They can learn from experiences. They can remember what's happened to them. And so this makes it actually kind of puzzling that we don't remember earlier experiences than about age three or four. The consensus is actually that those early experiences are not recalled as singular events. Rather, when we experience things prior to age three or four, what we're really trying to learn from those events is how things usually go. And as such, we actually focus on the pieces of our experiences that get repeated across time. We don't focus on the distinguishing features that actually make a particular event one of a kind and unique. And until we have scripts, it's actually hard to learn from events in general. More recent research actually shows that kids recall new experiences much better if they first get a script for it. So, for example, if kids are first told what generally happens when you take a trip to the zoo and then they go to the zoo, they learn more on that trip they remember more of their experiences than if things are done in the reverse order, if they go to the zoo and then talk about what generally happens. Now, before we leave Emily, I want to highlight one other feature of script learning that can be gleaned from her monologues because it relates to the last point that I want to discuss about script learning in adults. In another excerpt, somewhat later in the recording period, Emily takes up the topic of air travel. Now, this is an experience she's had only a couple times in her young life. If we ever go to the airport, we have to get some luggage. If have to go to the airport, have to take something of the airport to the airport, or you can't go, need your own special bus, and they zoom, 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 zoom. Aside from being just deadly cute, um, 
this quote of Emily's points to the fact that we sometimes learn or try to learn scripts from a single event. Um, Now, given that scripts are complicated and they're multidimensional in ways that aren't so easily described by rules, you might expect that we only learn scripts through a lot of repetition. So one question is how we pull this learning from a single experience off and whether we can do that as adults. So researchers Ahn and Brewer and their colleagues actually examined this, and they they did it in kind of an interesting way. They gave college students some specific stories about Native American potlatch ceremonies. Now, these ceremonies are large family feasts, and they're generally held for the purpose of redistributing a family's wealth. So students in the study were unfamiliar with the cultures from which the stories were drawn prior to being in the experiment. Now, in the series of experiments using these materials, Ahn and colleagues assigned students to have different learning experiences. So some students received a written description of the script itself. Others received a single story. And still others got two stories, more consistent with kind of learning a script from being exposed to events on multiple occasions. Some students were asked to just read the passages. Others were asked to figure out the potlatch ceremony. And finally, some students were given background information on Native American Northwestern cultures, not about the potlatch ceremony at all, but about power relationships and hierarchies and family dynamics. Now, it turned out that the most efficient way for people to learn the script for a potlatch ceremony was to be told the script directly. And if you think about many approaches to employee training, this is a feature of such training. Many times as employees, people are taught in this situation for this kind of event, this is what needs to happen, and it needs to happen in this order. But people were also able to learn the script from a single story about a specific potlatch ceremony, provided two things happened. First, they needed to be given some background knowledge. That is, they needed to understand the culture within which the event was taking place. And second, they had to use that background knowledge to explain the single story to themselves. That is, they had to put together what they already knew with the event in order to extract a schema from a single instance. Now, an interesting feature of this is students did not do this spontaneously. That is, they didn't spontaneously take the background knowledge and try to explain the event to themselves. They only did it when the experimenters told them to do it. And what this suggests is that we have a lot of capacity to learn scripts from just a single event, but we probably don't try to do so very often. And my guess is that in most cases, we reserve our effort for things that really are going to happen repeatedly. So if you think about these college students in their real lives, their lives outside the experiment, understanding and learning the potlatch script wasn't very important because they weren't going to have to do a potlatch anytime soon. Let's now consider the ways in which we learn scripts more broadly and with a little more attention to our everyday lives and how those lives look. And it's here that we're going to return to ideas about purposes or goals for learning scripts. As children, the data from Emily and from other more controlled studies suggest we're actively engaged in a process of script extraction, a lot like the one Ann Brewer and their colleagues pointed towards. That is, We're experiencing events, and we're actively trying to explain those events to ourselves in terms of what we already know about the world, however minimal that might be. Further, in childhood and beyond, others are engaged in helping us to do so too. Emily talked with her parents and her caregivers about this. We talk with one another about the events of our lives to try to figure out 
what usually happens. Now, as adults, the extent of our background knowledge is typically much, much broader. We've spent a couple decades at least on script extraction and maybe more. We're probably less likely to need to develop new scripts. Most of the daily events of our lives fit within our existing scripts, and we can therefore remember our daily experiences as distinct events rather than using them to figure out the script for how things usually happen. But under some circumstances, we are vitally interested in acquiring new scripts. These circumstances include, although they're not limited to these situations, but they include new jobs, moves to new towns, and taking on new social roles. And under those circumstances, we return to an active engagement in script construction. Now, depending on the extent of the changes that we're experiencing, the old scripts may be more or less useful to us. But the capacity to acquire new scripts is there and waiting for when we need it. How we do it when we need to do so is also going to be variable. So, as I mentioned, jobs often provide explicit training in the scripts that are important for doing a job well. Other new experiences can leave us with a lot less explicit available training in scripts to draw on, such as holding and caring for a newborn, navigating the politics of a local school system on behalf of our children, or figuring out the social norms of a new culture or even a new workplace. And in these cases, the kinds of self-explanations and deliberate thought that Emily was relying on in her crib may actually be our best adult tools for navigating a new world. But in all those cases, we have something to build from in acquiring a script or a category. Emily had language to use, for example. What about babies? Babies have to start from nothing, so aren't they the real tabula rasa? But I've told you many times there's no such thing. So in the next lecture, we will consider just how babies manage the overwhelming amount of learning they have to do. And we'll think about what their management of learning has to do with the way that grown-ups learn. <laughs>